Hello, everybody, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Bad Motor GP show. We have Keelan back. You uh, were on vacation in Hawaii, so did you enjoy the vacation? Oh, yes, it was fantastic, Leo. First of all, everybody, thank you very much for tuning back in. It is great to be back. I'm sorry to disappoint you by being back, but thankfully, our very good friend Leo from Brutal GP did an amazing job standing in. So thank you very much to him indeed. But yeah, had a great time, recharged the old batteries, um, got some new perspectives and things, and I am back. Let's get straight into it. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot to discuss. Uh, we were in Le Mans. Uh, fortunately, with no rain, uh, I thought a rain a race at Le Mans uh, would be too much, you know. <laughs> um, it's nice to have a dry race uh, sometime in Le Mans because the track actually is kind of interesting if you have a normal dry race. But uh, yeah, the wet race uh, last year or the flag to flag race wasn't uninterested um not saying that but i like the dry races you know because you get a more equal uh level of performance you know the the riders oh, are true to their performances and yeah so uh i guess we have to start with inia Bastianini. he had once again a vintage uh performance because he had a great qualifying he had a good start and that's pretty much all he needs It's like the opposite from Fabio, because whenever he's in the top three, top five, uh, and it's getting to the second half of the race, you know you're in danger. And he had a great, great, great pace. He had like three uh, 131s late in the race, which was crazy. I believe one time it was a 31.8. Ridiculous to do it uh, with the... Uh, burnt tires and everything so yeah and um as always great tire management what's funny is that he finished three races on the podium and won each of them so maybe if you want to criticize him get that consistency up finish uh, a bit more on the podium but yeah you can't really complain with his performance he's amazing Oh, what a brilliant performance from Anea Bastianini. The guy's got a 100% KD ratio. It's it's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. Um, now, Leo, you've just you've hit the nail on the head, everything there with Anea. Had a really good weekend. Just looked perfectly adept to the track from Friday, from free practice. Got into qualifying. Just looked smooth. Didn't look bothered one bit. Um, you know, he just fits that bike so well. He's just adapted to that bike a way I've, I don't think I've seen anybody adapt as quickly. You know, he's done such a brilliant job and it's a credit to him. But the race performance was mind-blowing. Absolutely incredible. Um, you know, we have to take this back to last year to Aragon to get the most accurate comparison here of Peko Banyaya truly under pressure. And if you remember last year from Aragon, Mark Marquez was up as chuff and Pekka was able to fight that off very, very well. Enea Bastianini just puts a different kind of pressure on people. It's so fascinating to see. And I think the thing that's really helping Enea Bastianini is a point that you hit on really well, which is tire conservation. 
Inaya's writing style is very powerful and yet it's very refined. It's a real oxymoronic style of writing and yet he's able to somehow make it work really well. Like you said, coming into the last laps of the race, you know, he was still banging out 131s, which is nearly unheard of. It's absolutely, the mind boggles to think how he's able to do it and yet he does. So Inaya Bastianini, just the most deserving winner you can think of. You know, Pekka Banyaya never cracks under pressure, and yet this time he did. That's the sign for Bastianini. I mean, that is the sign of a guy who is on a mission and who is a strong, strong contender to take the crown this year. Yes, I agree with you partially, because I don't buy the whole he cracked under the pressure. He simply made a mistake, and, you know, it's easy to Which make... anybody can do Yeah, it's easy to make these mistakes on such a high level, you know, but it's not like he's surprised by Bastianini's late race pace. Everybody knows that he has the um, the harder front tire in the medium tire, um, the same which Bastianini ran. But Jack Miller uh, said something pretty interesting about the medium tire, which was that he didn't get any feeling at all. I mean... Uh, he used the soft tire and he said even though the soft tire you get a little bit more understeering you get a feel for it you could read it better and maybe that's the issue you know maybe it has nothing to do with Bastianini because as you said Aragon Pekko Banyaya knows how to win a race and he knows how to handle pressure and I assume he knows when it's okay to finish second and in his position he should take this uh, second or even a third place any day of the week because This championship is pretty much all about consistency. Fabio uh, leads the world championship and nobody knows how. So it's not about winning every race. It's about being consistent. And if I'm Peko, I'm taking that. And I believe it has more to do with the tire or something, maybe a little mistake. Then, oh my God, I have to catch Bastianini. But that's just my opinion. Peko uh, knows the answer. <laughs> I do not, you do not, nobody knows. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much my uh, opinion for Pecos Crash. Yeah, I agree with you. Like you said, it can happen to anybody, whether it's pressure, whether it's a mistake. It was probably somewhere in the two. I would guess one led to the other. It was just a mistake going out wide has happened to everybody on the grid. And then I think he just got a little bit rash, a little bit emotional and thought, I have to catch Bastianini. Instead of doing what you said, taking the second, taking the third place and living to fight another day. But look, you can't blame Pekka Banyaya. There is no better feeling than winning. And when you're as addicted to winning as Pekka Banyaya is, God knows he's done enough of it. When you're addicted to winning the way he is, sometimes second or third doesn't feel like it's enough. So I don't blame him. I think he's entirely justified in wanting to win. I do think if he learns that pragmatism, if he learns when to take second, third, that's what will win him world titles. Because like you said, and you're absolutely correct, this is a 2020 title season when Joan Mir won. This is not going to be about, for me, who wins the most races. This is about who can consistently finish the best. It's no point in winning five races and crashing out in the next 10. That doesn't help anybody. Consistently getting second, third, fourth, that is what will get you your world titles. That's what Fabio Quartararo knows very well. And that is what Banyaya will know as well. So I'm not too worried about it. I know you're not either. It's just getting into that mindset and the rest will come. 
Yeah, yeah. The problem is uh, when we remember Misano last year when he blew the championship, he had the hard tire in, and Jack Miller did the hard, uh, rode the hard tire too, and uh, Jack Miller crashed too. So um, maybe it's that the Ducati doesn't work as well with the harder tire. I don't know, but yeah, the problem is the further you go into the season and the further you fall behind, the more risk you have to take. So Peko Manjaya will have to take a lot more risk now, knowing that he's down uh, a couple of races because he had some bad performances this year. And um, yeah, it's it's good for him that Mugello is coming up because it's a Ducati track. It's good for him that tracks like um, like Catalonia or the Red Bull Ring, you know, tracks there where the Ducati is traditionally good, that they are coming up but he has to take a little bit more risks now than he would have if he would have just finished second, you know? And uh, I believe still that he will be a title contender because it just takes like two or three races where you're really good. Just takes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I can see uh, him still being uh, at, at a good level uh, at the rest of the season because as we saw in Jerez, the Ducati works very, very good even on tracks which aren't necessarily Ducati tracks. So I'm not concerned a whole lot, but he just has to cut out the mistakes now. Well, no, I def I'm not concerned one bit either, because even when we think of and talk about the Ducati, the Ducati is now a bike that can turn very well, as well as I'd, sell, I'd accelerate any bike on the straight. So Paco has a much better weapon at his disposal than he would have in previous years. The one downfall for the Ducati is the one that you put very eloquently. It's that lack of front-end feeling. That is the problem. And it seems to be a correlating problem with Michelin's hard front tyre. Now, I can only assume that's what it is. Um, like you, again, as you said, we don't know the answer. Only Ducati know the answer. But it would appear that the Ducati bike just works better with a soft front-end tyre. Like Jack Miller did it. He finished really well. He's gotten some really good momentum as well. So maybe this is the answer for Ducati. Um, just focus on a soft front-end and work with the rest. Yeah. And uh, one last uh, thing I would like to add, uh, speaking about Ducati, is uh, Jorge Martin, because there's a lot of talk about that second uh, model uh, GP factory seat uh, from Ducati. Will it be Jack Miller? Would it be uh, Ine Agostinini or, or Jorge Martin? And uh, he's doing pretty much everything in his power to not get this uh, seat. But he told uh, the media that uh, he had some nerve issues in his uh, hand where he couldn't really feel uh, the braking, like how hard he's braking. And maybe that's a reason. Maybe that's a problem which will continue. Uh, we don't know, but hopefully he will be back to his uh, full powers because let's be honest, he is one of the best riders on the grid if everything works, you know. And uh, his speed is outrageous at some time. So I hope he will get it uh, back together and then he can challenge for a title maybe in the future. Not this year, but maybe in the future. Oh, for sure. Jorge Mart when Jorge Martin is fully fit, he is setting lap records in every session. That is how fast Jorge Martin is. He is, he, when at full flow, he is untouchable, including Pekka Banyaya and even including Anaya Bastianini as well. I think, I think if we're making the direct comparison, 
comparison between Jorge Martin and Nenea Bastianini, because those are the two competitors for the second factory seat. Let's be totally honest. I think with Jorge Martin, he is maybe a slightly higher top end of potential, but he's extremely unstable in form. When he goes up, he's hitting lap records and winning races, but when he's down, he's suffering nerve damage and really severe injuries. Whereas with Enea Bastianini, he might be, I mean, he's still spectacular, but with Enea Bastianini, you get this level, constant form. He's always finishing. He's always in the points. And now he's finishing with race wins. He's finishing in the top five, top six. So that's something that Jorge Martin really needs to consider. And I'm totally with you on this, Leo. I really hope he gets it back together and he gets that fitness back. And I just hope that he's careful as well, because Jorge Martin is not that much older than me. In fact, I think he's probably younger than me and I'm 22 and he's already suffering things like nerve damage issues. That's concerning. So for me, I really hope he takes it easy. I hope he gets whatever surgery or procedure he needs to try and get that back and then just be more careful because it's not worth risking your long-term health either. Jorge Martin, get back fully fit and we will see you on the grid. Yeah. Um, who is indeed very consistent right now is Elijah Spagaro. It's his uh, third podium in a row, I believe. Yeah. And uh, he won at uh, Argentina. He has this same little issue he had in Jerez where he was a little bit stuck, you know. But uh, he has some serious pace and the Aprilia is very good. But he is Aprilia. I mean, everything that Aprilia achieved, they achieved because of him. He had a very, very good race. And uh, he's a title contender now. I mean, who would have thought? Oh, man, if you'd have told me five or six years ago that Aprilia would be a title contender, I would have probably bawled straight in your face laughing. Um, it's the most unbelievable thing. But if there's one man I'm delighted that it's happening to, it's Alicia Spargo. You know, throughout his career, I've always liked Alicia. He's always been a hard worker, whether he was at Suzuki, whether he was at Yamaha, whether he was at Aprilia. He's always, always done his best. He's always put in, he's always been one of the hardest workers on the grid. I mean, look, I mean, in the off season, he's at the standard of a professional cyclist in Europe, which is incredible. The level of fitness and stability you have to have to do that. I don't even want to think of that. But Alicia Spargo is such a great guy and I'm delighted it's happening to him. And you're right. Alicia Spargo is a prelia. And that, that's not me being hyperbolic or trying to be overdramatic. They should rename that bike the Aprilia Alicia Spargaro GP because that is his bike. He has spent all this time developing it. The bike is powerful. The bike can now turn. The bike is easy on tires because Alicia Spargaro developed it. While the rest of the grid were laughing at him, while the rest of the grid were claiming that he was wasting his career away at Aprilia, he was out at the tests putting in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laps To make that bike the title contender it is now, I could not have any more respect for Alicia Sparrow if I tried. And I'm delighted this is happening to him because no one deserves it more. Yes, and let's uh, think back like 10 years where he was riding the CRT bikes, which were pretty much just a little bit modified superbikes. And he was getting some good results on the thing. And funnily enough, that was also in Aprilia. So uh, maybe, it was. <laughs> maybe 
if he didn't wrote that Aprilia as well as he did, the whole Aprilia project wouldn't have wouldn't have started. So I don't know, just a speculation. But uh, yeah, that's uh, a thought I had right now because he made that project even before the project existed. So I'm very happy for him. He had uh, a new clutch uh, at the weekend, which is a carbon clutch, and apparently nobody else is using carbon clutches. So um, he needs to get uh, onto grips with the thing and have some better starts because when he's like, let's say in the top two after the uh, first lap, he has some serious pace. And if, when he's in clear air, he can uh, do some damage. And Maverick said that he overheated the clutch. And that's the reason why he was so bad at the end of the first lap. I believe he was last. So um, yeah, I believe when they get to grips with it and manage to start, both Aprilia's can be good, but especially Aleish, he is as good as Maverick is. I mean, let's be honest, he is one of the best riders on the world. And that's the tragic thing about it because he, I'm not saying he's wasting his talent, but you know, he is far better than a 10th position. You know, he should be competing for championships. That's how good he is. And I hope that he can get his uh, shit together because his race pace was incredible. He just has the same old Maverick problems. Maverick is being Maverick, you know. He has to have a good qualifying and he has to have a good first five laps and then he's fine. But um, yeah, maybe that new clutch will help both of them. Let's see. Yeah, absolutely. Um Breaking down Alicia Spargo first. By the way, shout out Dorna for the new shoulder cams on the riders. That is such a fantastic feature. I'm a massive, massive fan of it. Thank you for that. Um, I was watching Alicia Spargo's shoulder cam at the start, which is, of course, what you talked about with the new clutch. And you can see when Alicia was revving to basically to move off whenever the lights went, there was something with the clutch and a lot of riders just flew straight by Aleish. Um, So you're absolutely right in that. That seems to be his only issue. Once he's gotten to grips with that and gotten that ironed out, I expect Aleish to be winning races again. Absolutely. I'm pretty confident with that. And as for Maverick Vinales, finishing in the top 10 is a very impressive result, I have to say, especially with a track that is as unpredictable as Le Mans is. You know, with Le Mans, there could be bumps in the corners. You know, sometimes the camber can really throw people off. So he did a very good job, I have to say. But I do agree with what you said, Leo. Maverick is much better than 10th place. At the very least, he is podium pace. And he's proven that with Yamaha. He even proved it with Suzuki a longer time ago. He is race-winning material, but he has to get it together. And... I do believe that the clutch might be inhibiting him slightly, but eventually he does have to take responsibility. If he can take responsibility, get that pace up to where Aleish is, then they could both be competing with each other for wins as well. That is not an impossible reality. So yeah, very impressed with Aprilia overall. Aleish is Aprilia. I think we've made that very clear. And Maverick seems like he is starting to get to grips with things. So great time to be Aprilia. Yeah, of course. And I mean, it's a new clutch. So, and you don't know if it's an electronic issue at the start when the bike is not really getting uh, away. And when you're comparing yourself with Ducatis, who are historically very, very good at uh, starting, maybe you look a little bit foolish. But yeah, um, <clears throat> he has to, or Aprilia has to figure this out. Maybe the new clutch 
as they gain more experience will help them. And then maybe next year with the customer team, they can collect a little bit more data. And uh, yeah, let's let's see how it goes. But I'm very happy for Aprilia. I had my time making uh, fun of them, but this time is now over. And I'm very, very happy that they are now one of the best bikes on the grid. We're back to making fun of Honda and Yamaha. Aprilia, you are in the clear. <laughs> yeah, speaking about Yamaha, I mean, Fabio had the same old story. When you want to win with the Yamaha, you have to qualify in the front row, have to have a good start and bang out like five laps where nobody can uh, catch you and then maintain a good pace. So nobody will catch you. And uh, this is in 2022, simply too much to ask for. Fabio had a bad start he was uh, swallowed up in the first uh, lap he was a little bit unlucky that um, Takanakagami launched that very optimistic overtake into the last two corners which costed him some time but Zarko uh, took care of it and pushed Taka wide in the chicane in the next uh, in the next um, opportunity so yeah but uh, Fabio he is still way too good for Yamaha I mean I can't phrase it any other this bike is such a piece of shit that Fabio the best rider in the world can't overtake a single rider because the bike hinders him you know I don't know if it's, if it's just the engine maybe it's the arrow there are some speculations about aerodynamics uh, because also Aleish uh, said that he has some uh, issues overtaking because as soon as he gets close to anybody else he loses the feeling for the front so maybe it's time to discuss the whole uh winglet and arrow thing you know but yeah the yamaha it's the same old story fabio is doing the best he can but something has to change in yamaha and maybe something has to change with the rules you know well, yeah, there's no question about it. Um, look, we've said this for, I, I actually think we've been saying this since the very first episode of this podcast, eight episodes ago. You know, yeah, Fabio Quartararo cannot be doing any more with what he's got. He is literally wringing the life out of the M1 that lies beneath him. And he is doing the best that he can. He, I mean, when you have a world champion in MotoGP, which is the sporting pinnacle of two-winged motorcycle racing. It's, you don't get any higher than MotoGP. When the champion of that sport is telling you that he's the champion, but his bike cannot overtake any other riders, you've got a pretty serious problem there. And, you know, you can't expect Fabio to be doing any more than he's doing because he's doing as much as he can. Um, he's literally having to go into the corners, pray that he's able to basically outbreak people and get a better exit than them, or he's going to get swallowed up into the middle of the pack. And it's, a, it's quite frankly a miracle when you look at the people in the standings that he got fourth. Johan Zarco, Ducati, fifth, Marquez, Nakagami, Binder, all people who are on mostly better bikes than him that he's able to outride at this point. So, yeah, I couldn't agree anymore, Leo. Fabio's doing everything he can. Yamaha needs to get their shit in order. We've been saying this since the beginning of the season. They're probably not going to, but we know they need to. Now there's rumors that it's the aero package, as if the engine wasn't bad enough. Now the aero's letting them down. I mean, is Fabio going to have to drive a Yugo around the track? 
before Yamaha listened to him? Or is he going to have to ride a fiat Ponto around the track before Yamaha give him something he can win with? I mean, what is what's going on? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not just Fabio who's complaining about the arrow. And uh, in general, I'm a fan of innovation. And if that helps you to go uh, around the lab faster, I'm all for it. But this is the only issue I have if it hinders the racing. I mean, we had this whole dirty air discussion in Formula One over the last whatever years, five years, 10 years, whatever. I don't know. And um, this is pretty much the worst thing that can happen to a racing series if the racing gets boring, you know? And if Aleish and if Fabio and maybe other riders who aren't as uh, open about it have some issues overtaking, this is an issue for the sport. And let's forget the Yamaha engine for a second. If you can't have a feeling for the front tire, which is pretty important in racing, um, then you are really, really fucked. And if the arrow pushes the front tire down which is obvious that it does and it doesn't get that push anymore because you're in a slipstream and you can't overtake you lose the feeling and the whole setup of the bike is pretty much um, turned upside down then it gets in it gets to be an issue because when you're a fan you want to watch close racing you want to see 10 overtakes a lap uh, and like moto 3 you know you want to see a moto 3 race basically on the big bikes and we have such an equal playing field that it would be sad that this gets hindered from these stupid arrow things. I mean, just cut them off. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't say that much better. I mean, innovation, like you said, is great, but there's a certain point where innovation just becomes a space race. And that's very different. That is not good for the sport. Like you said with F1, I mean, Mercedes dominated Formula One for, what, seven, eight years with Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton between them. And everybody said they were developing too quickly, and that was bad for the sport. Even back in the 1990s and the early 2000s with the Schumacher Ferrari, everybody was saying it then as well. Nobody wanted to watch it because the Ferraris were basically lapping everybody else at that point. We're at the same point in MotoGP with the likes of the Ducatis where even though they're great bikes and this sounds weird to say as a fan of the sport, they're almost too great and they're too great to a point where they're just so far ahead of everything else in the grid that it's becoming a one trick race. And that isn't good for anybody. Um, so, I mean, like this is a discussion for Dorna and the technical crews and the chiefs. This is something they have to consider because the, the sport has to be watchable and it has to be lovable for the fans. Otherwise, no one's going to turn up anymore. Uh, you know, we, it's like Phillip Island in 2015. There's a reason why so many people think that's the greatest MotoGP race ever, because we had something like 120 overtakes in one race. And we had that because the Ducati, the Honda, the Yamaha, all those bikes were equal. And we had riders who were able to ride good bikes all the same level and they were all able to overtake and make it entertaining and basically lap by lap turn by turn sector by sector change the course of the race whereas with this it's kind of like whoever just finishes on pole and qualifying is going to win the race and that's not what we want you know that's why formula one with respect to their sport has been dire viewing for the last decade 
anytime a Mercedes finishes on pole or nearly any car, but anytime a Mercedes finishes on pole, you're almost guaranteed that a Mercedes is going to win by the end of the race. What we don't want is for Ducati to be the same thing or Honda to be the same thing, where it's simply a story of whoever finish, finishes first in qualifying is automatically going to win. Racing, winning is the most important part of racing, but it has to be viewable and it's got to be fun. Otherwise, why even bother? Yeah. And I mean, it's not like the Ducati is the dominant bike where nobody can touch it. You can overtake a Ducati and you can beat a Ducati. It has been done this uh, season and has been done over the last uh, seasons. And it's not like we have the same issue as in Formula One there that the sport itself is boring because there are some teams who are better and some teams who are worse. Pretty much everybody in uh, MotoGP is more or less on the same level. And you can beat a Ducati in Le Mans with a Yamaha, for example, if you can get close to them. And if you can overtake them maybe in the corners, you know, it's, it's not like Le Mans has a two-kilometer straight where you lose a second lap in, on the straight if you're a Yamaha. Thank God. Yeah, the problem is that you can't get close to anybody. The same, the, they, solved to, uh, they tried to solve the issue in Formula One with the ground effect cars. And um, it seems to be working. I don't know. I'm not watching a whole lot of uh, F1. But uh, I don't know how you can ban a front uh, ride height device and talk about banning the rear ride height device and uh, not consider the error. You know, I don't see the issue with the front and rear ride height device, but I see the issue. I mean, I can kind of understand why they're doing it. It's faster and that's pretty much what we want to see and uh, while we are talking about it I hate the fact that uh, there are some people complaining okay uh, the front tire gets too much uh, heat um, we can't uh, race anymore because of the front tire I know it's not uh, and they say pretty much that um, the front and rear ride height device makes the uh, bike arrive at the corner faster And the uh, arrows may um, allow them to brake a little later and have more pressure on the tire. So they're saying we need to get rid of this because we are losing uh, the feeling for the front tire. But I believe if you're Michelin, just build a fucking tire that's suited for these bikes. You know, you can't pull up with 2018 tires and uh, imagine uh, in F1 they were doing this with the all the this is not happening, you know? And uh, Michelin needs to get the head of their asses and develop a fucking tire that works. But if you're compromising the whole racing aspect, then it's a problem, you know? And I'm not a big fan of banning the whole error thing because I kind of like it. And I kind of, this is part of the reason why I'm watching racing because I want to see how the technical stuff gets better. Otherwise, I would just uh, watch whatever football if i don't care about the machine itself you know and that's the aspect of the sport and that's great but if this technical development is conflicting with good racing then we have a problem you know and that's why i'm kind of open to the discussion and i'm the more i'm thinking about it the more i like it just cut the arrow i have like normal bikes and let's race that's michelin sucks spring back bridge stone Yeah, I mean, that's a different, uh, different topic. It would be great to have some competition, but 
you have like spec tires everybody has the same tires you can't complain about the tires uh, that for example the other manufacturer is so much better and that's why uh, you lost you know um it has its benefits and it downsides because it obviously reduces the costs and that's a big issue in motorsport but when you have like one tire it's not the pressure of competition to develop as, as much as it would be with for example Bridgestone or I kind of like the idea that every manufacturer has a tire company where they have a contract with them and develop with the same budget you know the tires specifically for their bike would be great but it also has downsides because you know um, there's a reason it's uh, what it is the same with electronics would be faster yes but the cost would go uh, through the roof and which resulted in uh, like having four competitive bikes on the grid in 2012. It's not beneficial, you know, so it has its upside, it has its downside, but I'm not having like a huge issue with only one tire manufacturer. I have an issue with Michelin, but yeah. This is what I would do. And I, I think we can actually reach a compromise here on the points that have just been raised. Let's take all the money out of aero development and let's put the money into having different tire manufacturers and make it interesting. Yamaha, you can have Bridgestone back. Honda, have Pirelli. Ducati, you can have Michelin if you want. Aprilia, you can have Hancock. I don't really care who you want. As long as they're all within regulation and they all fit specifications, let each manufacturer have a different tire developer. I don't like this autonomy of just one tire manufacturer, this one size fits all approach. It's like having people with different types of feet and expecting them to all fit into the same shoe. How does that make any sense? That's not fair to everybody. Let them all have a different tire manufacturer. That's the change I would make. I want an M1 and Bridgestones again. Honda can have whatever they want. Ducati can have Michelin's if that works. But let me have... Let me have tire manu manufacturers for different bikes. That is the change I would make. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I don't believe this is happening. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can totally understand that the downside would be the cost. And if uh, manufacturers like Suzuki uh, are pulling out because of money, it would be dumb to, uh, to have them spend more. And when Michelin, uh, they came into MotoGP in 2016. No, it was 16. 15 was the last on Bridgestones. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. It was, believe, it was 16. I believe uh, they were the only manufacturer who wanted to get into MotoGP. So Pirelli didn't want to. Dunlop didn't want to. So if the Thai manufacturers don't want, you have no choice, you know? There's a way to get them to do it. I'm convinced. Money. <laughs> yeah. No, Take but our own money. <laughs> yeah no but back to the actual race in itself uh yamaha i mean fabio is doing an amazing job i don't know how he uh how he is the world championship leader but the other yamahas they are simply too bad it's the same same issue there that we discussed like a thousand times already they have to get better as a team you know and um yeah Speaking of underwhelming performances, I would uh, like to switch to Honda because Marcus wasn't good, but he wasn't bad. You know, he was decent, but uh, it was evident that he had some lack of pace when he couldn't follow Fabio uh, and couldn't catch up to the top group. 
and Zarko overtook him like it was nothing afterwards and pulled away. Um, yeah, so the Honda has some issues, but Marcus did okay. No uh, issue with his performance there. Same with uh, Paul and with uh, Taka. They weren't good, but they weren't bad either. But yeah, Alex Marcus was bad. So he's doing his best uh, to lose his job as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how the Honda will develop over the season. Because, you know, the, the bike is pretty much a completely new bike. Honda has all the data, but they have a new bike. And uh, they have to understand the bike. They have to set, find a setup that works. And um, apparently the Honda is suffering when it's getting hot. So that's the issue you have to solve because most races are uh, in the heat. Let's go to Mugello in two weeks in the summer. <laughs> Let's go to Catalonia, you know? Uh, all tracks that are historically in good weather conditions. So... They have to um, they have to do something there, but I believe they will. But it's the same thing like we discussed already a thousand times. Marcus doesn't have the front feeling that he likes. And the old Honda had this feeling, and it was developed into this direction for a reason. The reason being Mark Marcus. And now he's struggling because they went in a totally different direction. The only issue is that he is still the best Honda which is a problem for everybody else because for example if you're a pole and you're saying hey i need this i need this and honda develops a bike away from marcus more towards your um approach which worked for him in the first race but afterwards not anymore uh, then you have an issue because you you lose your credibility and they are gonna fire you and yeah probably bring john mir in yeah, it's an issue with Hana, you know, but I believe they will get a little bit more into the grips. Yeah, um, HRC are in a bit of a weird spot right now. First of all, if you have a bike that is a problem with the heat, racing in Europe in the summer is not your solution. I'll tell you that for nothing. Um, for the love of God, that's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. But to Honda... Yeah, Honda are in a real tug of war right now in the MotoGP paddock. And on one side, we have Mark Marquez. And on the other side, we have the other three Honda riders. Basically, we have Mark Marquez pulling on one end saying, take away the front end feeling, give me my old bike back. And we have the other three riders saying, give us front end feeling, we can't ride this bike. So now Honda are in a, they're in a massive headache, pain in the ass situation with their riders because they have three riders who want to ride a normal bike and they have one exceptionally talented rider who wants a bike that doesn't work as well, but he can ride. So if you're Honda, what do you even do in that situation? You know, if you're Alberto Puig or you're Tokoyama in that garage, what on earth kind of decision do you make? Do you back your other three riders and develop as they've done a bike that's more rideable to the average rider? Do you go back to the 2019 bike that only one alien can ride, but he can win nearly every race with? I got to say, I don't know. I'm glad I'm not in that camp and I'm glad I don't have to make that decision because that is a tough call to make. But what I will say is, Leo, and you've said something there that I agree with, and it's feeding into silly season, which I'm sure we'll cover in another episode. 
I do believe Shawan Mir will go to Honda, and I think that will be indicative of where Honda are going to take this project next. I don't think they're going to bend the new bike they've developed. In fact, I think they're going to take it further because Juan Mir is probably going to be able to ride the rideable bike in a better way than Paul or Takanakagami or Alex Marquez have been able to. In Juan Mir, you have a world champion who, who can ride a normal motorcycle really well. And I think with someone like Juan Mir, especially someone who likes that really good front-end feeling, I think you will see someone who is able to bring the most out of that new bike. And I think it will be another move away from what Marquez would have wanted. So either way, I'm intrigued to see. As for the race, other three riders pretty much in the wilderness. Good seventh for Nakagami, admittedly. Eleventh for Paul, 14th for Alex Marquez. Good sixth for Mark, but it is telling that he couldn't catch up to the rest of the pack. Yeah, I mean, if I'm Honda... First of all, I have to realize that Mark Marcus is not the same anymore that he was in 2019. And this option that you will just give him this bike with very, very good front balance and very, very mediocre rear balance um, that he can ride where he has this exceptional talent to um, make up for the fact that it doesn't have much grip on the rear, but he can push into the corners like a motherfucker. I mean, remember uh, the good old days where he was uh, dominating. He always had the hard front tire in and he was hammering the thing into the corners with the rear spinning around. And it, it was just spectacular, but it's not the same rider anymore because we know about his injuries and it's, no way, no way that he's the same. This is not possible. It's it's a, uh, it's some kind of uh, yeah. Danny Pedrosa said, when you injure yourself, it doesn't leave only a, a scar on your body, also on your mind. And if you're Mark Marcus, you know, one more crash could end badly. We discussed this uh, after Indonesia. So um, yeah, what I would do is first of all. I'm uh, making sure that I realize I have to build a bike for everybody else. Second of all, I have to realize that Alex Marcus isn't going to do the job. Takanakagami won't do the job. And Paul Espargaro apparently not. I thought he would be better because he had a very, very promising preseason. But he isn't doing that. And to be honest, I don't get the Juan Mir hype. Because... What is Joan Mir doing? He is finishing sixth and fifth and sometimes on the podium and not really that much more, you know? But uh, they they have to find a rider and I'm still suspecting Pedro will sign with uh, Honda in 2024 that can push it to the limit and I don't believe that Joan Mir is the one. But yeah, get some riders in that are good, that... Uh, will develop the bike for you and that will bring some results home and get some new talent in there Ayogura for example um, and yeah then then see but yeah the way Honda is right now it's not good but it could be worse you could be Suzuki oh my lord <laughs> Oh, where do we? I mean, I was, I think I was in Hawaii when I first heard the rumors of what was happening to Suzuki. And I'm still as stunned then as I am now. Um, I could have this wrong, but my understanding of the reasoning is Suzuki's car division, which let's be honest, who buys Suzuki's anyway? Um, 
my understanding is that Suzuki did a Volkswagen group and pulled emissions cheating on their tests. And basically they've been found out, caught with their pants down, whatever metaphor you want to use. And now they're basically in massive, massive trouble financially because they've been caught cheating their emissions. As a result, their motorsport division, most specifically the MotoGP division, is now being shut up shop as a result because they can't put the resources into it that they would have otherwise. Apparently, a figure I saw, this could be wrong, but I think it's the figure I saw, apparently Suzuki commit about 40 to 50 million euros a year to the MotoGP team, which doesn't surprise me. It is probably around that much. So with everything off track, um, I think it is truly shocking and it is the worst, worst possible timing that something like this could have happened because you finally have a bike that is the best inline four bike in the grid with two riders who are finally showing some sort of promise. I mean, Juan Mir is a world champion, but that was a consistency title. That wasn't a spectacular title. You have Alex Rins, who is looking good on your bike. You have Juan Mir, who is doing good on your bike. And now the team's being shut. It is just words don't I mean if you were a comedian writing a skit you couldn't write it better than this the team finally starts doing well they're a real title challenger and now the plug's being pulled at the end of the season I'm really sad for Suzuki especially Livio Supo and his team because they've done such a great job and those are people you know don't get me wrong we all feel sorry for the riders who are going to have to adapt to another bike but they're, these are ordinary people who are going to have to find another job. You know, this is their career. This is their livelihood. There's hundreds of support staff there who come the end of the season are probably going to be jobless and they're going to have to try and find another team where they can build those relationships back up again and get their career going again. So I do want to say I'm really, really sorry for them. It's not their fault. No one wanted this. If you want to blame anybody, blame Suzuki for cheating emissions on cars that probably people don't care that much about anyway. You know, I mean, I'm not going to get into that because that's not relevant, but it is sickening because they're such a great team um, with an even better bike. But onto the racing, obviously two DNFs, pretty crap. Uh, Alex Rins is lucky to still be alive. Uh flying across the gravel trap like he's Superman with a helmet on. Absolutely incredible. Juan Mir, DNF'd again. Just not a good weekend for him. And yeah, just pretty dull, really. That's all I've got to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I already uh, said my reaction to the Suzuki um, exit. The official statement is that they want to shift their investments into renewable energies which was kind of what I suspected, but uh, yeah, we, they only know the whole truth, but uh, yeah, onto the race, that's pretty much the worst that could happen for Suzuki, because as we said earlier, you have to be consistent this year, and Alex Rins was on the way, he had a bad weekend in Jerez, but Le Mans was good, you know, and Jean Mir, pretty much the same, first DNF wasn't his fault in Portimao, but this can't happen if you want to win the championship, especially if you are a Suzuki, because you won't going to uh, go into a race and just blow everybody away. It's not going to happen at Suzuki, no? Let's be honest. But yeah, I believe it's the best bike on the grid. And I believe uh, that if Suzuki would be there for next year, that Fabio 
would have a look into this bike and probably would win the world championship so yeah it's pretty sad but you know it's it was the worst uh, possible thing that could happen i feel sorry for everybody and alex rins seems to be a little bit back to his old ways apparently he was trying to break the bike while being off track to not go full speed onto uh, the track again because there's this little hill where you can jump over and Marco Bizzecki and Remy Gardner did it and they didn't crash and apparently um, Alex Rins was trying to hold back a little bit and he didn't manage to stay on the bike but yeah fair enough can't blame him for that but uh, yeah it's I'll tell you what I will say about Suzuki there could be one positive that comes out of this if I'm Yamaha in Iwata in Japan Fire the whole team and bring Suzuki's team in. Let's yeah. get a better M1 finally. If yeah. those people can't do it, get the people who can do it. How about we do that? Yeah. Yeah, I made a meme about it. So, But um, I would like to uh, discuss KDM because they have a horrible bike. And I mean, Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder, they know the bike. They developed the bike. They did okay. I mean, Miguel crashed. Darren Binder had... Uh, his wing uh, rubbed off by Joan Zarco. But uh, yeah, it was okay for them. But I feel sorry for both rookies because not only is it hard enough to, to get accustomed to MotoGP, especially this year because it's so incredibly tight and everybody's competitive. I mean, Fabio Di Gian Antonio has a great bike in the Ducati and he struggles and yeah Marco Bezzecchi is doing a good job but he's also a very very good rider on a very very good bike but if you're a rookie on a KDM I feel sorry for you because the the thing has pretty much so many issues that you don't know where to start and as a rookie you should get a fully developed bike you should get a bike that is easy to ride and get accustomed to the class and then maybe try to develop a bike and not being stuck in a situation where you have to develop a bike and don't know uh, what to do with it, you know, because yeah. you're a rookie, you can't blame them. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, as a rookie, it's very hard to judge when to move up into the MotoGP class. If you ever get the opportunity, you know, I would assume, I mean, even though I don't think it is the case for some guys like Raul, guys like Remy, guys like Fabio Di Gian Antonio, they don't know if this is going to be their only chance to ever get to get into the premier class. It gets more and more competitive every year, every year, every year. And sometimes you do have to jump at the first offer that comes out at you. I'm not blaming them for that because I do understand why. But like you said, and it's such a great point to make because I didn't even think of it, you know, to expect a rookie to improve a bike and make it better in their first year in the class it's such an unfair thing to do. You know, guys like Remy and Raul, they're coming off a super tiring, super competitive Moto2 class where they had a perfect bike and they were blowing everybody else away pretty much every weekend. So to go from Moto2 to MotoGP, which is a massive enough jump as it is, but to go to a bike that basically still has scaffolding on it and is still trying to be fixed and perfected, it's a mammoth thankless task it really really is and you know a lot of people who are really critical of them who, who they who don't deserve the criticism 
But people who are really critical say things like, you know, oh, if you want to be a champion, you've got to do what Valentino did and go and develop a bike like a pig that was the Yamaha in 2004. And that's just such an unfair comparison. And I have seen people make those comparisons because there's just no acknowledgement of the fact that they've never even ridden the bike before. You know, you've got to give them a chance to get used to it. And, you know, it's so weird from last year, KTM seemed to have gone backwards. I don't know what's happened or what they've done or what they haven't done, but the bike's gone backwards and it's really disappointing. Like you said, Brad Bender, eighth, very solid result. And everybody else DNF'd, you know, you can't really summon up any better than what's there. Yeah, and it's like the third season of uh, Brad Binder and fourth of Miguel Oliveira, I guess. So you would expect them to override some problems because they're familiar with it. And uh, I don't know if KTM can get the concessions back because we know rain races don't count in the uh, concession standings if you want to and also honda could get some back if marcus doesn't uh pull a rabbit out of his head but uh yeah would be interesting and maybe this is the solution for ktm just uh yeah just tank the season away and uh get the get the concessions but the riders won't play with it because you know miguel Oliveira, he was so close last year of beating Mark Marcus at the Saxon ring. And he beat Fabio in Catalonia. If the thing is working, the thing is working, you know? And Miguel is a very, very good rider. He just has a bike underneath him, which is a piece of shit. And Raul Fernandez came into the Moto2 class and was the best rookie ever. He was better than Mark Marcus. In That's statistically true. Statistically in a different true. time, you know, Mark Marcus back in the day, there were rumors that he had some special electronics. This is not happening in uh, 2021. So the fact that he gets onto a bike and isn't competitive at all says anything because the talent is obviously there. Remy Gardner has six seasons or seven seasons under his belt in uh, Moto2. A long time. He has some experience. He has the experience with the Mistral, which wasn't the best bike either. And to be there and just not to be competitive. And it's not like the typical rookie season where you have like a good race, like Marco Bizzecchi in uh, Argentina, then have a bad race again, crash again. No, they're just pretty much dead last with Darren Binder behind them. And this, first of all, it's frustrating, I guess. You can see Remy in the interviews. He is very, very pissed off. And uh, Raul wants to get out there or he doesn't even want it to be there in the first place. There are these rumors with Jack Miller, which pretty much says that either Miguel or Raul Fernandez will leave because apparently Remy is uh, staying at KTM. And yeah, to be fair to KTM, they're not sacking their riders right away. They're doing a good job of uh, giving them every chance that they can get. But yeah, I just feel sorry for them. Yeah, um, couldn't agree much more with you. Um, I mean, whenever you have a rider who's still pretty beat up from Moto 2 and his teammate who never wanted to be there from the beginning, it is a bit of a problem for the garage, you know. And, you know, it's not like they have these issues, but they're papering over the cracks by winning or getting really good top 10 results. You know, this is a team where the riders have DNF'd in most of the races that they've raced already. And that is just 
it's got to be soul destroying if you're tech three KDM. You know, Miguel Oliveira is a weird case. You know, he's a bit like Jorge Martin. Jorge has an excuse because of his injuries. But when Miguel's on top form, untouchable. But he's nothing close to being consistent enough. Nowhere near. Brad Bender, solid. He's a bit like KTM's Joan Mir. He's solid. He's stable. And yeah, occasionally he's even spectacular. But he, he he's kind of the baseline. But with KTM, they need to get it sorted out quickly because they are going nowhere fast. Yeah, and talking about KGM, uh, you have Pedro Acosta on the line. And the last thing that you would want is Pedro to leave. And if I'm Pedro, and this bike is still such a piece of shit next year because I don't believe that he will... Um, he will uh, switch to MotoGP next year. I believe he will stay at Moto2 because he's still just 17 years old. He needs some time, obviously. And um, yeah, but he showed his potential yesterday. He was the most dominant rider on the whole Moto2 grid until he crashed, you know? And if I'm Pedro and I'm looking at the KTM, I'm not riding the thing. I would go... I mean, the Honda isn't great as well, but I would trust Honda more than I would trust KDM to develop a bike because everybody's running an aluminum frame and um, KDM has this weird steel frame. They have their own suspension. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe it's just too, um, too much pride to say, okay, our concept is wrong. Could be, I don't know. But yeah, if I'm Pedro, And even if I'm Augusto Fernandez, you know, I'm not going on the thing. Only if it's my last option. And if I'm Pedro, I'm having, if there are five manufacturers uh, in two years, I'm having five offers, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and There's going to be factory offers. And, you know, Pedro was so, so strong over the whole weekend. He was very, very clean until he wasn't. And, um Yeah, he just showed development and he was so impressive that the 17-year-old boy is dominating the way he is, you know. Don't forget it, he's just a boy, he's a rookie and in his fifth race he uh, was so fast that I don't necessarily think that the crash was bad in itself because it's just a learning experience. I mean, you're not competing for the championship, just be there and next time learn something and don't crash, you know, but he showed his potential. And this is pretty much what a rookie season is all about. Show that you have potential, get the confidence and get the experience. And then next year he will do some damage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, Pedro Costa 17 and these are the expectations we place on him because he's so damn talented and so good on that bike. And even in the race, to lead it for as long as he did is the sign of a champion in that division. There is no question about this whatsoever. I mean, yeah, look, he slid out. It happens to MotoGP riders. It's happened to Moto2 riders. It'll happen to all riders. He, he, he took the corner a little bit too hot, slid out. It is what it is. He will learn from that, and he will only be better. But his formal weekend was fantastic. And when we consider the wider picture, I do really like how you approach this, Leo, I have to say. If I'm Pedro Acosta, I'm not making that MotoGP jump next year. I'm waiting till 2024. Probably moving up as Moto2 champion would be my guess next season. Um. 
I think he moves up as champion. And if there are five manufacturers, there will be five factory offers. I do agree again. Now, if I'm Pedro Acosta and I'm looking for a bike that suits and a bike that I can mold into my own, I'm probably looking at Honda. And I think you've mentioned this already. I think Honda could be a good fit for Pedro Acosta. I'm not going to go into all the reasons you've gone into because you've covered them very well, but I am going to go into one. And that reason is actually Mark Marquez. Now, you might be wondering where I'm going with this, but I'll try and lay it out as best as I can. Mark Marquez is 29 years old right now at some point in this year i think his birthday's in july he's going to be 30 it's wait a minute he uh turned 29 in february so he will be 30 next year all right well so he's 30 next year which means by the time pedro acosta moves up he'll probably be 31 32 in that area which means he's approaching what are meant to be statistically the peak years of his career. But in that time, there are probably going to be more crashes and more injuries, at which point Honda are going to look for the next big thing, and it's going to be Pedro Acosta. I think Pedro is going to get an offer from Factory, Honda, HRC, and I think they are going to make him the next Marc Marquez, basically make him the star of the team, build the bike around him, channel all the resources into him and make him their next world champion if i'm pedro acosta i'm playing the long game because there ain't a hope in hell i'm jumping onto that ktm the bike is a pig of a bike and i agree with you i would not jump on that even if it was my last option i'd wait it out for anything else instead have you ever been to spain yes have you ever seen all the repsol uh, gas stations i have yes That's where the money is coming from. So um, I don't know if Honda will sack Mark Marcus, but I believe they will, first of all, know where they are um, at with him because after this season and after next season, you will know if Mark Marcus will compete for a championship again or not. And then maybe they do the Jorge Lorenzo uh, Valentino Rossi stuff where they just bring Pedro Acosta up, say, okay, this is our guy now, this is our young guy. And uh, you see if you can hang with him or not. But I don't see Honda paying Mark Marcus like 20 to 25 million, whatever, a year to finish sixth. The problem is they have no other option because he's still the best Honda rider. And um, to be fair, he's still his, uh, their best option, period, if Fabio doesn't come to Honda. And um, yeah, so if I'm Pedro... And I'm getting the reps all offer. First of all, I'm earning a shitload of money. I'm having the biggest motorcycle manufacturer in the world uh, as my team. And Honda proved that they can develop a bike which suits you. They did it for Mark Marcus and it didn't took long. And Pedro, I don't see him signing with uh, Aprilia. Maybe they will change my mind uh, when they dominate next year, but I don't know. And Ducati is kind of a weird place because they have so many talented riders. They're yeah, they're loaded. Hard. Yeah, they can't afford to put another young rider in there, you know? Um, yeah, so, but back to Pedro. Solid weekend, crashed, unfortunately. Shit happens. Get on the bike again and Mugello and do your best. Augusto Fernandez, he was calm. He was collected. He showed his experience. And he just... It seemed like he knew Pedro would fuck up 
and you just write it out and the gap that they pulled reminded me of last year when Red Bull KDM was uh, dominating but yeah he was very good let's see if they can establish this IO dominance again and maybe challenge for the title because Vietti seems to get a little bit uh, inconsistent yeah um, I was really impressed with Augusto Fernandez. I mean, the guy is a veteran of the class. He really is. And he's such a fantastic rider too. Augusto Fernandez did to Pedro Acosta what Enea Bastianini did to Peco Bagnaia, in my opinion. He remained a presence as the laps were ticking off and he got in his head, I think, a little bit. I think Pedro thought, you know, Augusto's closer behind me than he actually is overcooked it a little bit into the turn unfortunately slid out and you know it was an open goal for Augusto Fernandez but Augusto is a brilliant brilliant Moto2 rider you know even last year he was sensational year before with Mark VDS he was brilliant and this year he is going to be brilliant as well because he is a class rider he is one of the favorites for the title this year I really really think he is and we could be looking at the next champion in Augusto Fernandez. Um, I would even argue last year when Raul and Remy were dominating, he was the third best rider. You know, he was, if you're making a podium of Remy and Raul, the third place is Augusto. He was the silent um, trilogy act in behind those two. And people, well, understandably, they forget it, but they do forget it. So for me, Augusto Fernandez could not be more impressed, consistent, fast, brilliant pressure and he will be one to watch this year yeah sure the season is still long i mean there are 14 races to go this is as many as there were 2020 period you know so um even with uh, vietti now struggling ogura he is pretty good and Carnet also very consistent despite his injury he's still fast which is uh, very promising um, still lacking this uh, first win in Moto2, but I believe it will come. But who surprised me like the most was Cam Bobier. He came from like 16th or something along the line, and uh, he was battling for the podium. To be fair, there were a lot of crashes, but you know, it happens, and you have to stay on the bike. So, um, very, very impressed by him, and also I believe his first podium will come because he's He's showing that he belongs there. Oh, no question. Um, I'm going to take these in the sort of pack of three that you've ordered them in, which I do like. Aaron Cannot, unbelievably impressed. You know, gone through a really bad injury and he's still on the podium. The guy's a machine. He's insanely talented. And, you know, he's just doing brilliantly with what he's got. Ayagora, impressed again. Very solid fifth place consistent, stable, fast, everything you want in a rider. He is going to MotoGP next year in the LCR team. I am highly confident of it. I do think Nakagami is going to get swapped for him, and I see why. I think in Ayagor, you've got the perfect stable rider to build the LCR bike around. I really, really do. And then Cameron Bobier, Team America himself, you know, he's just caught such a great vein of form. He looks really, really good. It looks to me like after his, I think his debut season was last season. It looks like now he's really getting to grips with the bike and he's fulfilling the potential that anybody who knows anything about motorcycle racing knew he would. You know, the guy, 
the guy's a five-time Moto America champion. He knows what he's doing. He's had premier, well, he's had Grand Prix experience before, and he knows his way around the bike really well. And I'm so happy he's finally showing it. You know, there was a lot of criticism of him last year from naysayers who are just don't know the sport and he's proving everybody wrong and he's proven those people right who believed in him so for me i am delighted for cameron bobier it's nothing more than he deserves and that podium is not far off the horizon i mean joe roberts won a race cameron bobier absolutely can everything i do like possible. joe roberts though <laughs> yeah everything is possible you know <laughs> no but um yeah i agree uh bobier is constantly improving and he's showing his improvement you know very good um yeah one last ride i want to cover in moto 2 uh, which is alonso lopez first of all i don't agree at all that they sacked romano finati but on the other hand i totally agree that alonso lopez should be in this team in the first place so um yeah At the beginning of the season, I was wondering why didn't they sign uh, Alonso Lopez from the beginning? You know, he deserved to be there. He was pretty much on par with Fermin Aldeguer. Uh, yeah, but okay, whatever. I'm happy for him that he's there. I don't agree with uh, the sacking of Finati, but you know, um, it is what it is. So unfortunate uh, ending, but man, what a debut. He was so ridiculously fast and it felt like he was a man on a mission. He wanted to prove everybody wrong. He wanted to say, fuck you for not signing me. Fuck you for not signing me. Fuck you for not signing me. And um, yeah, I'm happy for him. And this is the kind of downside of uh, being a Spanish rider because there are so many that if you are not special, 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 you will get overlooked, you know? And um Yeah, but I'm very happy for him and I believe he can do some damage over the season, especially in the tracks that he knows, you know. Couldn't have said it any better. Really, really happy for Alonso Lopez. I won't get into the politics of uh, the speed-up team because it's just a mess no matter where you look. Um, Romano Fanati has his own checkered past, but he's, he was a lot better when he came back. And I agree with you. I don't agree with the decision to sack him after, what, five races? That's the most crazy decision I've ever heard. You don't sack someone after five races. I mean, the guy was brilliant in Moto3 last year. You don't just give up on him like that. But they made their call. It's theirs to make. And they, they at least did a brilliant job with the replacement. A guy who arguably should have been there the whole time, like you said. Alonso Lopez was sensational. He broke out of the pack early on really, really well. Unfortunate that he crashed the way he did. But the promise he has shown, I mean, him and Fermin Aldeguer could be a really, really menacing team, both in the speed-up team. You know, Fermin's shown his potential already this season. And I think Alonso Lopez will be joining him in that most promising category because he did a brilliant, brilliant job. Props to him on his debut. Yeah. So let's not forget that is this is motorcycle racing and money and sponsors are playing a role. So you don't know what's uh, going on behind closed doors. Just pure speculation. Could be that Romano Finati uh, is just a dickhead and that's why they fired him. Could be that sure. there's money issues. You know, there are a thousand reasons. But looking from the outside, it doesn't look good. But you don't know the real reasons and we will probably never know. But uh, yeah, as you said, good, good for Alonso Lopez. 
And uh, yeah, lastly, I would like to cover Model 3, which uh, was a weird race because in the first race, it was complete carnage with the race and but everybody made it back so which is an improvement from Portimao but uh, yeah did race direction really did something better than in Portimao or were they just lucky first of all that just these few riders crashed and it wasn't like a huge crash and were they lucky that uh, they crashed in the last corner where they just were able to uh, pick up the bike and push it into the box you know what if it would happen like in turn eight for example you would be screwed you know and so was it just luck or did they learn something well i'm hoping it's the latter but i'm assuming it's probably the former um yeah i mean race direction rightly got absolutely panned after Portimao, of course, for not red flagging the race. I still don't know what the hell they were thinking, but it seems like they've actually done something different and they've listened for a change. Um, thankfully, it was red flagged after, I think it was Ricardo Rossi and a whole bunch of other riders went down in the last turn. The Gascas riders, for example. The Gascas riders and Sergio Garcia, of course, as well. You're absolutely right. And um, thank God the red flag didn't everybody was allowed to restart. Uh, yeah, to answer the question, um, I hope it is that they've actually learned something and they've got some common sense for when the red flag races. But I'm going to assume there was an element of luck as well because I'm just a pessimist at this point. Yeah, you know, but imagine this. Isan Guevara and uh, Garcia and there are, I believe two other riders who pretty much crashed simultaneously. They're in this gravel and a Moto3 bike weighs approximately 80 kilograms and a rider like them probably like 50 or 60, you know. So naturally the bike will slide further than the rider. Everybody who knows a little bit about physics knows this. So uh, let's imagine the bike is further in the gravel trap than the uh, rider is. And then from the back, somebody crashes again on this wet patch and somebody gets hit uh, with a motorcycle in the back or in the head or, you know, there are so many horrible things that thank God didn't happen that could have happened that I simply don't agree why race direction isn't a little bit too early with the red flags than a little bit too late because yes, it was the way it happened. It was good. Everybody got back to the box. Nobody was hurt. Uh, um, not uh, like in Portimao, you know, but it could have happened. And you knew it was going to rain because there were rain uh, drops on the camera. Just red flag the session and be safe. Have the restart with 14 laps. And what's the worst that can happen? That you made a premature decision. But it's better to make a premature decision than to have a dead or an injured rider. So I don't really get why they didn't uh, red flag the session earlier. And I uh, honestly don't believe that they learned anything. It's a reasonable assumption. I'm yeah. not going to lie. But yeah, um, you make a very good point with the potential injuries. I mean, look, 
when Alex Rins flew through the gravel trap and crashed, his bike actually, I think, hit him on the back of his helmet. And that absolutely could have happened to any of those Moto3 riders as well. And, you know, I, I hate bringing it up because it's such a tragic thing, but I'm tired of seeing riders not getting back up again from accidents that happen on track. This kind of thing can absolutely be avoided if the right people make the right decisions at the right time, if not earlier. I just hope when this happens again, and it will happen again, that we see something premature rather than a disastrous post-decision. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I pray that it doesn't happen, but especially in a class like Moto3, it's, you know, it's, it's more likely because they're so fast, yet they're so close together and it just takes a little not even a mistake, like a little wet patch and you're gone. And what if the fifth rider behind you is also gone and his bike hits you, you know, this is, this is a horrible thought and it has to be avoided. And that's where race direction is for, you know, but um, yeah, I hope that they uh, can figure this out somehow in the future. I know it's a difficult decision to make, especially if you have TV time and sponsors and everything, you know, but in hindsight, it's better to red flag a session, which was maybe unnecessary, than have an injured or even worse uh, rider, you know? Um, yeah, but onto the race, the Gaskas boys, they crashed, they made it back to the box and Isan Guevara somehow finished on the podium. Um good for him but yeah Garcia seems to be a little bit nervous he was all over the place making like really aggressive moves with uh too much uh laps on the clock you know it's it felt like he was trying a bit too hard you know yeah yeah that's the feeling I got as well um First of all, credit to Isan Guevara. Brilliant performance to get back on the podium. To recover psychologically from crashing on that first lap deserves all the credit in the world and a great performance as well. But with Sergio Garcia, I almost get the feeling that he's climbing this mountain. And they always say don't look down for obvious reasons. And it feels like Sergio Garcia's looked down, seen how far he's come, seen how high up he is, and now he's clinging on to the mountain for dear life. And that's that's what the vibe that I get from his racing. It's like he's so scared of crashing and he's so scared of not losing that he's becoming too cagey and he's becoming too scared when he's riding. And Sergio Garcia rides his best when he's free, when he's flowing and when he's lucid. This is the worst possible thing that Sergio Garcia could be thinking. He's got to get his head clear. He's got to get focused and the race wins will come again. And look, uh, seventh isn't the, it's not a disaster. It's not the worst in the world. But when you've got people like Jaume Macias storming to the front, you've really got to get the wins and the podiums where you get them. Yeah, I mean, you picked uh, Jaume to be your world champion and uh, I thought you were out of your mind. But uh, he is on, another level right now. I mean, he was so calm and so sure that he was going to win this race in his last lap that this move from Sasaki, which pretty much came out of nowhere, doesn't seem to affect him at all. And he was just riding his line, sliding back in uh, to the lead in the second to last corner. 
pretty much just a, a very, very, very mature race from a rider with a lot of experience. You would expect this, but uh, he is very good. And it seemed like he finally put the things together, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joao Mercia had a great race from the beginning. Um, all that um, maturity and experience factor that you mentioned was a big part of it. But yeah, he just had a great, great race. And when he managed to get to the front, he never really let, like letting it go. I mean, you mentioned that move by Ayumi Sasaki, who had a great race in his own right. And you're absolutely right to mention it. The fact that when someone pulls that kind of move on you and it doesn't even phase you, that tells me you, you're in a pretty good place with your riding and your racing. And Joami Messia is on top of the world right now. He's on red hot form. He looks great. Every time he gets on that bike, he looks comfortable. And that's the sign of a world champion. I mean, this was the thing we saw with Pedro Acosta last season. Every time he got on the bike, he looked mature beyond his years. He looked comfortable. He looked composed. And that's how he took the championship by storm. I could see something not too dissimilar happening with Rami Masia. Uh, I mean, I know it was a very left field pick, but I did pick him to be my world champion pick for a reason. When he gets those first couple of wins and those first few podiums, he does get going. And I do see him being able to carry that form throughout the season. So for me, credit to Rami Masia. Fantastic race in very tough conditions. Yeah, uh, still, I believe the Moto3 Championship is a bit of a lottery. And oh, I still, yeah. I still uh, stick with my pick from uh, the beginning of the season, which was Isan Guevara. He's doing good. He was good a little guy. bit unlucky in the first couple of races, but uh, he seemed to recope. And yeah, in her house, he was utterly dominant. And he did some kind of damage limitation. I'm a little bit disappointed in Dennis Foggia. I don't know what's up with him. Uh, I would have expected better from him, but uh, maybe the Honda isn't as good as we thought it would be, you know? Mm, I don't think it's the bike. I think it's Foggia. Um, and the reason I think that is that I think with Moto3 especially, you know, every race is such a lottery. You can, you can pretty much gamble on who's going to finish in the podium every time. I think Foggia kind of blows hot and cold a little bit. I think when he's hot, he's untouchable, a bit like Miguel Oliveira and riders like that. But I think when it becomes really intense and when it becomes a proper battle at the top end of the grid, I do think he's starting to struggle a little bit, which I find strange because Dennis Foggia is an amazing rider. I mean, with his Honda that he rides, I mean, at the end of the second lap, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Isan Guevara on the Aspar bike. I'm not too sure. But he was right behind somebody and he flew past them to go into the lead. So I don't think it's the bike personally. I think it's more the rider. But it could be a combination of both. Again, I don't know. I haven't seen the bike. Obviously, I don't have access to it. But it could well be both. It could well be. That's a perfectly logical explanation. But I think Fodge will be back at the next race. He's a good racer and he will be optimistic about a podium. Yeah, but there's more to a bike than just straight line speed. And Le Mans is a track which has a lot of corners, a lot of oh, yeah. heartbreaking areas. And also Honda, they struggled massively in uh, Jerez. You know, it's not like there's another Honda rider who's good. No, 
Fonchier was the best Honda rider and uh, last race, uh, Scott Ogden was the best, a rookie. You know, maybe the Honda isn't as good as it or maybe KDM made a step, you know, but um, there's simply not another Honda rider who is on his level and there are like a few KTM riders who are above him, you know. Yeah, I mean, the stats themselves don't lie. I mean, you have Guevara, Sasaki, and Messiah above him. Um, I don't know if it's the fact that it's Le Mans, which is a twisty, tricky track. Maybe that favors the KTM bike, possibly. But, you know, I'm still I'm still optimistic about Foggia. I think um, in the next races, he will come good. He's had a pretty good start to the season already. He's been on the podium a couple of times. So I wouldn't write him off just yet by any means. I think he's still got a lot to offer this championship in this season. And I think we'll see him come good. Yeah. And there will be a lot of tracks which uh, will suit the Honda better. But oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Imagine, um, remember last uh, season, he had a pretty bad start to the season. And after, what was it like uh, after Austria? he pretty much came into his own and uh, made a run for the title with a better start to the season and maybe the same um, run on tracks which suit him better, which suit the Honda better. You don't know. Maybe he can be a real threat at the end of the season because Moto3 is simply a lottery, you know? Qualifying is just for fun and uh, you have... You have like a couple of riders who seems to make it to the top every uh, race. But if you finish fourth or if you finish seventh or if you finish like second, this it's small margins, you know. So these uh, things can happen and it's still very possible that Dennis Foggia will win two races and is back on the top. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we've seen it happen to Jaume Messia. He's in his hot streak right now. We could very well see Faja go on a hot streak, especially in the next three, four, five races. You yeah. know, I, I think the next tracks we're going to are tracks that Faja will be more comfortable on. And I think they're tracks that will suit his bike as well. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's anybody's guess. I'm just on the optimistic side of Faja. I think he will come good. Yeah. And didn't he win in Mugello last year? I think he did. I actually do think he... I think you're right. I think he did win in Mugello yeah. last year. So uh, there's hope, I believe. Dennis? Yeah. Uh, next, uh, The next race in Mugello will actually be a little bit difficult because the 24-hour um, the race at the Nürburgring is uh, there. And I will be there, so I don't know how much uh, MotoGP I will be able to watch. Thank God I have the uh, video pass, so I can watch it uh, Sunday evening. But yeah, uh, just a heads up that maybe the memes aren't coming as uh, quick as they usually do. But uh, we have our meme of the week now. Yes, meme of the week. This was another very, very tough selection. I'm going to see which one is worthy of the honor. I mean, realistically, any of them are worthy of the honor. Um, Didn't we want I to mean, make um, Moto3, Moto... Yeah. We have Stewie Griffin just feeling pain. I, I got to be honest, uh, one that I actually really like that you put up 
only a couple of hours ago is the Valentina Rossi one. <laughs> I, I, I think there's this, I think it's probably for me, it's between Valentino with I've never done this before and Stewie Griffin with a handgun. So I'm going to give the honor to both of those because they were just exceptional. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Pedro ones there was so relatable because uh, finally we got the lead. Finally, he was uh, there. I was very invested. And uh, yeah, then uh, this little bastard crashed and I was like, <laughs> so the, the main w meme with uh, Squidward where he, um, where he walked out like, yeah, and then walks back in. This was pretty much uh, my reaction because afterwards I was like, yeah, Rose Fernandez will win. And yeah, the, the battle for the championship, uh, for the podium was kind of interesting, but um, yeah. After Pedro crashed, uh, the race wasn't as interested, as interesting, you know. Just pain, pain yeah. is all I feel. But uh, yeah, we will see each other in two weeks in Mugello, or not in Mugello after Mugello. So goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>